This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God in worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. We're going to look at the Song of Solomon. So I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open it to chapter 2. and We'll be looking at verse 7 this morning of the Song of Solomon. So... Um, if you weren't aware, Tuesday is Valentine's Day, so you've got, had ample notice there. The origins of Valentine's Day are a little bit shrouded in mystery. There's really not a clear line as to how Valentine's Day began. Some scholars believe that it actually has its roots in an ancient Roman festival called Lupercalia where they would celebrate the spring being on the horizon. They would celebrate it in mid-February. I guess it was the Roman equivalent of Groundhog's Day. I'm not sure. But as part of that celebration, they would actually have a lottery uh, for men and women to get together like a dance, kind of like a Sadie Hawkins dance. You just didn't know who your partner was going to be. But in the 490s, the Pope Galeus outlawed the celebration of Lupercalia. So mid-February was just quiet till about the 14th century when the practice of Valentine's Day began. Now, the name Valentine's Day is believed to have come from a martyr by the name of Valentinius. Now, once again, there's a lot of myths and traditions around this, but it's believed that Valentinius had been arrested for preaching the gospel. And while he was in prison, he was having a a great impact on the fellow prisoners as well as the guards. To the point where one of the guards was bringing his family. And he really started to have a bit of a, a romance with one of the jailer's daughters. And he would write letters to her before he died. And he would sign his letters, your Valentine. So now you know the rest of the story. Now, no matter what its origins are, one thing is very clear. Valentine's Day is big business. Because if you went to the stores on December 26th, you know what you saw? Christmas stuff coming down and Valentine's Day stuff going up. In fact, it's big business to the tune of $50 billion in the United States. That's a lot of chocolate. One of the reasons that Valentine's Day is so popular is because all of us have a desire to love and be loved. Not only do we have a desire for for others, but a desire to be desired. And that that goes across the board. This is not just a, a church thing. To me, it's one of the ways we are made in the image of God. The desire for love is something that we all have. So the Song of Solomon is very appropriate for us to turn to and to look at today, albeit briefly. Because the Song of Solomon is a celebration of romantic love. Now, two things that I want to mention here in the introduction before we even read the verses. First is this. The church has never known what to do with this book. You look at the history of the Song of Solomon and it's like, I don't know. Some have taken the point of allegorizing it and saying all it's about is this picture of of the love of Jesus for his church because we sure don't want to talk about anything else because it makes us so uncomfortable. And I have to be up front. I'm a little uncomfortable talking about it today. So if I stummer, see, 
If I stammer a little bit, you'll understand why. I don't think there's any doubt that the book of the Song of Solomon is about romantic love, physical intimacy. I mean, you read it, and it's talking about the warners of this. And you read where the, the, the lovers are trying to woo one another with language that is often beyond us and that is not used today. For example, where the man starts to compare his wife to the beauty of a giraffe. Now, that won't get you anywhere today, guys. But back in the Song of Solomon... That was wow. <laughs> Woo! So there's no doubt this is a book that's celebrating physical intimacy. So that's the first thing I want to be upfront about. Second thing is this as, as I talk about physical intimacy and it being expressed within m marriage, and I talk about the wonders of love as well as the dangers, I recognize that within this congregation, we cover the whole spectrum. It's one of the challenges of preaching about this because I know there are, are couples in here that you could stand up here and you could teach about this. You have a thriving relationship, but also know there are marriages that are struggling. I know there are also those that are hurting because where there are also, there's also pleasure in love, there's also pain. And whether it be through divorce or grief, I recognize this morning that this may be hard to think about. So I ask you to please bear with me. I'm not trying to be insensitive to those needs. But I believe to preach something that is sorely needed today. Because there's also another group here. Those who want to be married one day. Doesn't matter the age, but they're looking forward to that day where, man, I can be married and, and enjoy this. And that's part of the challenge. If I may just state it frankly, is waiting until marriage to unwrap God's precious gift of physical intimacy. Now in our culture, I know that in saying that, I'm viewed as puritanical, pilgr a pilgrim as it were, out of touch with reality, an old fogey, just a crazy evangelical preacher. But I am convinced that a lot of the pain in our culture is brought about because we have disregarded God's design. And that's why I want to come back to this one verse. One of the things to look for as you read through the scripture is things that are repeated. If you're reading a chapter and there's an idea that is repeated, guess what? That's probably one of the main ideas. As you read through the Song of Solomon, there's an idea that is repeated three times here in chapter 2, in chapter 3, and in chapter 8. And it's this one verse. So this will be our text this morning. You'll notice if you have the paragraph divisions in your copy of God's Word that this is under the title, She. You see, the Song of Solomon is written where it's kind of this dialogue between a bridegroom-to-be, his future wife, the she, and then the crowd that's, that's around them. So you have this dialogue going on as this poem is, is unfolded. So now the woman is speaking. And what does she say? She says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem. So keep in mind, she's not speaking to her future husband. Now she's talking to the other women. 
And what does she say? She says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelle or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This is repeated three times. This is the crucial theme of the book. It's not just about the expression of physical love or physical intimacy. It's about waiting until the right time for that to be. And the fact that she begins by saying, I adjure you, shows the urgency of this, the vital importance of this. It's urgent because guidance is needed. God would not give us something as powerful as intimacy and then leave us on our own to figure it out. That's like giving somebody a hand grenade and saying, oh, you figure out how to use it. You got a 50-50 shot. It's going to go well. So these are instructions. And I love the fact that this is a woman speaking with other women because that is so needed today. I am so thankful within our congregation that we have opportunities like Equip, like the Sunday night Bible studies that we have for intergenerational building of relationships. You know, in the New Testament, older women are instructed two times in the book of Ephesians and in Titus to instruct the younger women on how to respect their husbands. Men, we're not out of the bag. Older men, more mature men are instructed in how or to instruct the younger men in how to love their wives. I find that very interesting. And if I can speak in generalities for a moment, it's interesting that it speaks of teaching women to respect their husbands because the way to a man's heart is not through his stomach, as has been said, it's through his ego. Can I get a witness? But men are instructed to teach one another how to love their wives. That emotional need. So this is urgent today. Needed. As I said, the the roads of our country are filled with the wrecks of what has happened whenever desire has been given the driver's seat. Now romantic love is very powerful. Therefore it has the potential for great joy Or great pain. This is hinted at by the phrase that is used in the middle of verse 7. I adjure you by the gazelles or the does of the field. It seems kind of odd. I encourage you, I adjure you by the gazelle and by the doe. We would expect them to say, the the lady to say, "I, I adjure you by Yahweh. But remember, they were very cautious about using the name of Yahweh. So in some ways, this is a way of avoiding the use of the holy name, thus taking it in vain. But what she is doing is saying, I want to remind you in this promise of the power and the beauty of love. That's where the idea of the gazelle and the doe come back. The gazelle being this creature of power and speed. The doe being one of beauty. And it's a language that is connected to the Garden of Eden. Now follow with me here. Now this is a poem. But the language that is used in the poem of describing the relationship harkens back to the garden. Look up a little bit to chapter 1. Verse 15 of chapter 1. He is wooing his bride-to-be. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Aww. Now she responds. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. 
it's not talking about interior design here. The beams of our house are cedar. It's rafters pine. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Now he answers verse 2. As a lily among brambles, in other words, as a rose among thorns, so is my love among the young women. Aww. Verse 3. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Do you get the language of a garden here? A forest? Fruit? Animals? Trees? Scholars believe this is heartening back to the Garden of Eden by using this imagery to remind us that love at its best is a taste of what the garden was like, of this intimacy, of this beauty, of this satisfaction. But therein lies the problem. Yahweh is not mentioned in this book until chapter 8. One time. Yahweh's name is used only one time. And that in describing love by saying, love itself is the very flame of Yahweh. And I think it's a reminder that in this imagery of Eden, it's a reminder of what happened. Humanity sinned. They were removed from the garden. Separated from God. This is a reminder that even though love can remind us of the beauties of Eden, we still live in a fallen world. It's a reminder that marriages are lived out in a fallen world. That love is experienced in a fallen world. That romance is experienced in a fallen world. Marriage takes place between two sinners. So if I could give counsel this morning whether it be to a married couple or someone seeking to be married, is first remember this, that other person cannot save you. They cannot bear the burden of satisfying every aspect of your life. 25 years ago, James Cameron came out with a movie that made cinematic history. It's the movie The Titanic. Now, in case you've never seen it and you're wondering, here's a spoiler, the ship sinks at the end. Now, the question was, why would people go see a movie where you know how it's going to end? The answer that Cameron came up with was with this. You put a love story in it. And that's what draws people in. That narrative between Rose and Jack Dawson. See, Jack was a vagrant who actually won tickets to the Titanic in a card game. Rose, well, she was in the high society of Philadelphia engaged to a man by the name of Cal who is a millionaire and Rose is miserable. There's no love between them. It's a marriage of convenience and money. and She doesn't want any part of it. The movie begins with Rose as an old lady. She's in her 90s, one of the few remaining survivors of the Titanic. Her and her granddaughter are flown to an explorer ship that is over the site where the ship sunk where the ship has been exploring the remains of the Titanic, bringing things up from the bottom, and they have found things they believe belong to Rose. And as she looks through it, she looks to her granddaughter, and she says this, A woman's heart is a deep ocean of secrets. But now you know there was a man named Jack Dawson, and that he saved me. 
In every way a person can be saved. Every time I've watched that movie and that line is uttered, I want to scream at the TV, No! No other person can save you. They may make you happy for a moment, but we cannot put the burden of an, on another person of saying, you've got to satisfy me, you've got to be, and I don't like this language, although I know it's used, my soulmate. I understand the dynamics of how it's used, but we have to understand that no other person can meet all the needs that we have. Only God can. And when we put that pressure on a spouse, a husband, a wife to say, you've got to meet all my needs, we're setting them up for failure. And we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. We have to realize that marriage takes place in a fallen world. And yes, there are moments of the garden. But there are also those moments where we are reminded we are fallen. We have to realize this and accept it. I heard of a marriage counselor who was meeting with a young couple shortly after their marriage. They'd only been married a month and already their marriage was, it was hurting. And he started talking with them, trying to figure out what had happened in the four weeks since the honeymoon to cause their relationship to be in such a difficult spot. Eventually he found out that the real issue was with the guy. So he starts meeting with the guy alone. Weeks they go on meeting and finally the counselor said he got frustrated and he did something very unprofessional. He screamed at the guy. What's going on? We've been meeting for weeks. It's time for you to own up. What's going on? And the guy starts crying. The counselor says, okay, I'm devastated now. Here's this guy. He's crying now. And he says, well, well I want to tell you what happened. I want to tell you everything that happened. Okay, what happened? It was on the honeymoon. Yes, yes, he's got his attention. What happened on the honeymoon? Well, we got to the hotel and, and, and she had to go to the bathroom. Yes, yes, that's normal. That's life. But you don't understand. When she was in the bathroom, she made noises. And the counselor said, this guy's marriage was a wreck because of excessive gas. There's so many things I want to say right now that I'm not going to. Yes. That's that picture of him. You've got to be perfect. No one is. And the Song of Solomon's reminding us of that. Marriage takes place between two sinners who need the Lord. And that's why there's this warning. Okay? Now, the gazelles and the does remind us of the beauty, the power of marriage, the potency, and also the danger. But look at really what the, the bride gets at. That you may not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Now this is the main point. Don't awaken love until the right time. Because love's powerful. Look over to chapter 8. Now I don't have these on the screens. We're going old school this morning. Chapter 8. Want to get a picture of the power of love? Look at this description at the end of the book. Now we're going to come back to chapter 8 in just a few minutes. But look as, as the bride is still continuing to sing the praises of marriage and of her love, and she, of her love for her husband because they're married at this point. She says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Now listen to this language. 
For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. In other words, if you thought you could purchase love by giving away everything you had, you don't understand the true value of love. That's how powerful it is. It's the strongest death. Fierce as a very fire of love. And that's why she gives this promise. Don't stir up or awaken love. In other words, don't begin to engage in awakening that physical desire until it pleases. Now, that word it pleases reminds us of this. It's not the desire that drives the timing. Now, it's very crucial. When it says until it pleases, it's a way of saying until that love can be enjoyed in the proper context with the proper boundaries. That's when it can be fully satisfying. That's when it can be the most pleasing. When it's outside of the boundaries, that's when it brings destruction. So when it says until it pleases, is a way of saying until it can be fully satisfied. Now, to use an analogy, think of fire for just a moment. You recognize what an impact fire has had upon human history? Because of fire, we can cook. We can destroy diseases that, that in the food that would cause us to get sick. Fire has allowed for the Industrial Revolution, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age. Fire has allowed for migrations because then you could heat homes. You could heat teepees. You could heat up areas that you could move around and get warm. Fire has done all of these things. This morning, I'm assuming all of us got here by car. I didn't see any wagons outside. You got here in that car because of fire. You know what moves that car? Controlled explosions based on far. <laughs> Controlled. In the proper boundaries. Because that same fire that cooks, warms, and allows for growth, what happens if you're at a campfire and an ember blows outside of that boundary, lands on a piece of dry wood, poof, now you have a raging wildfire destroying things. Fire's good in the fire pit, the fireplace at home, but when it moves outside of that, what happens? It becomes destructive. So this is a warning to say, you do not let desire drive your thinking. You allow that desire to stay in the right place until the right moment. Then it can be fully satisfying. I say that because notice love is portrayed as being asleep. It's not going to do anything. It's asleep until you awaken it. See, one of the truths that our culture today says is, is immovable is that you are a person of desire. Therefore, to, give in, to not give in to desires causes harm. Therefore, if you have a desire, what's the matter with giving expression to it? It puts desire in the driver's seat. That's why there are so many wrecks. It is saying you recognize that desire from God is good. See, sometimes I think we get the idea that sexual intimacy is bad and that marriage just gives a right way to do a bad thing. That's not the picture at all. Marriage and, and sexual intimacy is a gift from God to be opened within the proper boundaries, to be enjoyed at the right time. 
that's where it culminates. It's interesting that the Song of Solomon doesn't culminate where we think it will. Look back to chapter 8. That verse that I read earlier. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. That's a way of describing marriage. The seal is a way of saying, showing commitment. So it's saying inwardly we're being committed, but then you get to the next phrase, as a seal upon your arm. That's visible. It's a way of saying that there is this commitment that has bound us together. And that then becomes the proper expression for this intimacy, this idea of complete devotion. Now, if, if I can give a second aspect of application to those who are thinking of marriage or one day want to get married, the question then is, when is the right time? We know marriage is the right time for this expression of physical intimacy, but how do I know it's the right time to get married? It's a great question and one you need to ask. Now, there's no way that I can go through everything here because you look at, at, at finances, you look at the reality of life, you think through this. But if I could say one thing this morning, it's this. How do you know you're ready to, to get married? It's by answering this question. Are you ready to serve? Are you ready to put somebody else's needs above your own no matter what? And not just saying it because the preacher's asking it. But to take it seriously to say, am I willing to put his needs first or my wife's needs first? Am I willing to think about what would benefit her and make her happy rather than what I want to do? Because that's the love of Christ, isn't it? Jesus himself said, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Are you ready to serve somebody? To be committed to them to say, I want you to experience satisfaction and happiness, so I will give to you. You get a couple that comes to a relationship where both partners are committed to serve one another 100%. That's, that's going to be a good marriage. Third piece of advice that I would give this morning is this. To recognize that there is a love that goes beyond. The physical expression. As I pointed out earlier, the Song of Solomon doesn't end where we think it will. It ends with the commitment. There's a train of thought in our culture that says the moment that physical desire dies down in a marriage, that marriage should stop. Because then it becomes lifeless. That's not true. There is a depth of love that goes beyond just the physical. A love that says, I'm truly with you. I share this next thing with you with a little bit of trepidation because I don't want in any way to portray a picture that my wife and I have the perfect marriage. Because there's no such thing as the perfect marriage. Marriages have ups and downs, struggles. Sometimes people snap at one another. I know that's a shock to you. But it happens. But in the last six years, I think I've learned more about, about love than I had in all the years before. February 13th of 2017 is a day that I will never forget. That is the day the neurologist told us that he believed our daughter Emma was going to be terminal. Standing in that hospital room, 
He had tears in his eyes. And he said, I estimate that your daughter will die in four to six months. There's just too much neurological damage. He was a very good doctor. He delivered that news with compassion. In fact, we were told later by his assistant that he went out and sat in his car for 30 minutes and wept. Needless to say, Jody and I were staggered. We knew we needed to tell our other two kids. Samuel was still at the hotel room asleep, so we said, I want you to come over in a few hours. My daughter was on a date with Gabe, who had become her husband a few years later. But I called Gabriel, and I said, Gabe, I need you to bring Ellen, because we've got some news we need to share with her. After I got off that phone, Jody and I went to the chapel together. Emma was being watched by a nurse. The chapel was very elaborate. This hospital had been a part of the Catholic hospital system, so it was a very elaborate chapel. And I can remember Jody and I sat down on the front pew. And we just cried. We just wept. We didn't talk. If tears were prayers, then we prayed our hearts out. But I can tell you at that moment, I don't think I've ever experienced a taste of what love really is. Then when you're in the middle of pain, and you say, I'm with you. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I'm there. There are many in this room that could give the same testimony. There's a song played often on the secular radio stations that expresses it. And I don't know the lyrics exactly. But he talks about how when that time comes when your hair is gray and your legs don't work like they used to, I will still love you. Young people, let me tell you, that is the love that blows the images our culture has of love out of the water. That's what lasts. That's what the Song of Solomon is talking about. The celebration of the love that God gives. Grow in that. He is the source. We live in a fallen world. Marriages will struggle. But don't give up. Don't give up. Will you bow with me in prayer? Father, I've been overwhelmed all week with the thought of preaching this. And Lord, I just thank you that you are gracious and good and you love us in ways we can't even imagine. Father, the very love we long for is found in you. You have given us the gift of physical intimacy is a gift to be expressed between a husband and wife. And Father, for that we thank you. But Lord, we also recognize the great damage that has been done because, because Lord, we are guilty of opening the gift too soon. So Lord, we pray for your grace. We pray for redemption. We pray, oh God, you'll work within us. That we would learn to celebrate love in the way you intend it to be celebrated to say it's a great gift. Hallelujah. And Lord, as I pray that, I know there are people that are hurting. So I pray, Lord, that your love would overwhelm those that are hurting today.
where maybe marriage hasn't ended up like they thought it would. Or maybe for whatever reason there is separation, whether it be divorce or even death. Father, I thank you that your love and your grace is sufficient in all things. So that's what we pray for this morning. Oh Lord, we need you. And we pray for your love and your grace to wash over us. In your holy name I pray. Amen.